but let's go ahead and read our text. And I'd like to, to kind of ramp up into our sermon text today, so let's back up to chapter 10, verse 24. Chapter 10, verse 24 is where we'll begin. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What's wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you've said in your word that the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom. And as we've just read, uh, that is a serious, serious thing. The terror, the dread of I am. Father, I pray this morning that the fear of the Lord would fall on us. Not a fear of what is he going to do, but a fear of God will do what he says he will do. Father, we thank you that you have poured out your judgment and your wrath on the body of your son, Jesus, and in this way, taken that wrath away from all who believe. And so this morning, I pray that if there are any here who are not in Christ, that today would be the day when you open their eyes and that your spirit rushes in and that you save every soul within the sound of my voice. Father, today we pray as well for Pastor Guy and for the team that he is working with in Spain. I pray that you would give him safety. I pray that you would give them effectiveness. I pray that you would open many doors of ministry throughout not only Spain, but also the rest of Western Europe. I pray that you would uh, uh, bring back to us news of your work in that part of the world. We pray for Carla as well as she ministers in Honduras. I pray that you would keep her safe And I pray that you would use her in powerful and mighty ways and reassure her of her her identity in Christ and her usefulness in your service. Lord, this morning, I pray that as we examine your word, that we would see you as you are. That today would not just be another Sunday morning, but that today we would have an encounter with the living God. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The history of the United States is filled with unlikely heroes. Men and women who found their stride at the moment when the fighting was at its fiercest and the stakes were at their highest and the the risk, the threat, the consequences of failure were the most severe. Consider a diminutive man who entered West Point Academy only as a last resort in the year 1839. He didn't even want to go. His stature, just over five feet when he entered West Point. Slouching posture and lack of military ambition left such an uninspiring impression that the school actually misrecorded his name in their register. Somehow, Hiram Ulysses Grant became Ulysses S. Grant. The S stood for absolutely nothing, so his classmates just made something up. They called him Sam. Grant graduated smack dab in the middle of his class, fought in a war he would later call a wicked war from which he was too cowardly to resign, developed a dependence on alcohol, resigned from the army only to fail at a farming venture on land inherited from his father-in-law. How embarrassing. And then a real estate partnership in St. Louis. And then civil war broke out. Grant rejoined the military and for a lack of alternatives was promoted to the rank of brigadier general. Finally, in February 1862, after receiving permission to go on the offensive from General Henry Wager Halleck, he laid siege to Fort Donelson on Tennessee's Cumberland River. After a few days, the garrison's commander asked for terms of surrender. Grant's reply would become famous. He said, no terms except unconditional surrender 
can be accepted. I, promote, I propose to move immediately upon your works. Grant's bracing message led to the surrender of 15,000 Confederate troops and the Union Army's first Civil War victory. It was so inspiring that the phrase, unconditional surrender, would follow Grant around for the rest of the war, launch him into the national spotlight, and propel him into a career that terminated in the highest office in the land. In our passage today, we see Saul of Gibeah rise to the occasion in similar fashion. He started out timid, halting, indecisive, but when it mattered the most, Saul was clutch. Of course, his success is going to be short-lived. We'll see that as uh, the weeks go by. But in this chapter, we see Saul's incredible, frankly, messianic potential as a leader. He was anointed by Samuel in private, announced to the people of Israel in public. But by the end of chapter 10, we're left with this awkward feeling that Saul has not yet taken his place at king. He hasn't yet been tested, but by the end of chapter 11, we are going to see Saul firmly situated on the throne of God's people. This is what happens when God's anointed leader acts in dependence upon God's spirit. He leads with refreshing decisiveness, fearsome, righteous wrath, and delightful generosity. And the result is that the people of God are rescued and the rule of God is renewed. And we'll see this play out across three movements in our text. Uh, the first of those movements is related to us from the end of chapter 10 all the way through uh, chapter 11, verse 3. So consider with me our first movement, the king tested. The king tested. Remember back to last week. Samuel anoints Saul. Saul is surprised. Samuel announces Saul to the people, and when he does, Saul is hiding in baggage claim. Here's a guy who looks good, he's rich, he's handsome, he's strong, he's really tall, but he's unproven, he's untested. So we come to the end of chapter 10, and there are basically two responses to Saul's ascension to the throne. On the one hand, there is this group of, of noble men, these men of valor, whose hearts God had touched, and they sort of throw their hat in the ring with Saul, uh, waiting for him to, to kind of find his stride as the new king. On the other hand, there are these worthless fellows, and they are cynical. Uh, they're, they're sarcastic. They look at Saul, and they say, really, this guy? He's supposed to save us from the Philistines? I don't think so. And so Saul is the king, technically, but in a sense, he's not the king, actually. Not yet. There are a lot of people out there saying, not my king, if you know what I mean. And Saul has a decision to make. Either I can go to war against all these naysayers, right, and I can make a big deal out of this, or I can sort of let this tension ride, and he chooses the latter. He returns to his hometown, and he waits, farming in his father's fields in the meantime. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Jordan River, Nahash the Ammonite is wreaking havoc. Uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, there's one really important scroll that was found in the caves at Qumran uh, of 1 Samuel, and that scroll actually has two or three additional verses in between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. We, uh, 11. we don't know whether that's original, where those verses came from, we're just not sure. But if those verses are really part of the text, they describe a terrifying reality. 
Nahash is actually the king of the Ammonites, and he subdued the tribes of Israel on the east bank of the Jordan River by forcing them to gouge out their eyes. I know that's kind of gross, but this is real life, okay? Uh, in the ancient Near East, when a powerful leader wanted to make a covenant with uh, a people, a, a lesser people, a vassal state, the people he was going to rule over, they would cut up an animal right down the middle, and then those two parties would walk in between the pieces of the animal. They called it cutting a covenant. And, and Nahash, he wanted to cut a covenant as well with these people on the east side of the bank of the Jordan River, uh, but instead of cutting up an animal, he was going to actually cut up people, and he would gouge out their eyeballs. Kind of gross, but I imagine it was very effective because once you've gouged out your right eye, you can't shoot a bow, you can't really wield a sword very effectively because typically your left eye would be covered up by your shield, and so Nahash uh, was a, an innovative man. He knew what he was doing. So now, he and his Ammonite hordes have descended on the city of Jabesh-Gilead, across the river from where Saul grew up, and he, he decides to sort of kick Israel's beehive. And uh, this time, instead of just gouging out people's eyes right away, notice his goal that's stated in verse 2 of chapter 11. What does he want to do? He wants to bring disgrace on all Israel. And so in other words, he wants to give these people seven days so that he could have one big fight with the best of Israel's forces all at once. So he says, okay, you've got basically three options. Either we can keep this siege going and you all starve to death, or you can surrender to me and become my slaves, and in order to prove that you're serious, I'm going to gouge out your right eye. Or option number three, because I really want to make Israel look bad. I'll give you seven days to go, go and find as many people to help you as possible, and then I'll enslave all 12 tribes all at once. Now, listen, I know <laughs> this might seem like the kind of thing that you would read about in a, in a novel or watch in a movie. It doesn't seem very realistic. We're so cushioned from the violence of the world that this just doesn't seem real, but this is the sort of thing that God's people have always dealt with. Like, when you're talking about serving God or serving the kingdoms of the world, there is no both and. It's always either or. And for many people, for many followers of Christ, it's always been even to this level of stakes. I mean, the violence in the world is uh, just uh, in incredible. Satan and his armies and a lot of human rulers who've decided to partner with him will do whatever they can to make a mockery of the covenant loyalty of God. That's what Nahash is doing. He's saying, let's see what happens when Israel and her God get called out. See, Israel is nothing. Israel's God is nothing. That's what he wants. Dale Ralph Davis, uh, in his commentary on 1 Samuel, calls this the Ammonite mind. And folks, make no mistake, we see the Ammonite mind at work all around us today. God's spiritual enemies often find greater pleasure in our capitulation, in our compromise with the world, than they do uh, in our destruction. Because when we uh, subjugate ourselves and submit ourselves as the people of God to the evils of the world, the slander that that brings against our God robs him of his glory and, and thus completes the objective that Satan has in the world. He loves it when we compromise with evil. Where do we see the Ammonite mind, the mentality that longs to bring disgrace on all Israel? Well, it seems to me you might see it at school. Uh, you think everybody 
is just a-okay with you following Jesus Christ at school or at work, then, then you're probably being a little bit naive. Uh, as long as you keep your faith to yourself, everybody's fine, right? I mean, that's not really the way it goes. Even if that were possible, it wouldn't be enough because inevitably someone is going to find out that you worship a God who has standards of righteousness that fly in the face of the values of the world, and they're going to realize that what they choose to celebrate is displeasing to your God, and that's going to be convicting, and until you join them in celebrating that sin, they are not going to welcome you. They'll always oppose you. Now, I know all of you have felt this, and sometimes I think in church, uh, many Christian leaders communicate that if, if you were good at being a Christian in, work, in your work or, or at school, then somehow you would find a way to share your faith or just live like a, a follower of Jesus in a way that will win the hearts and minds of your unbelieving friends. And you need to know that when people, the people who go to your school or the people who you work with or the people in your family reject you because of your faith, that may not be because you did something wrong. It may be because you're doing something right. We worship a God who claims total, absolute moral authority over every atom in the universe. And over the souls of every living creature who has ever existed. And he has this spiritual enemy who knows his time is short. So if you think that human beings who have decided to reject the authority of God are just going to lay aside their arms and welcome one of his loyal covenant subjects into their lives, if you think that Satan is going to go back, is, is going to back down from pulling strings in our schools or in the halls of government or business in order to just be nice and have everyone get along, then you're going to be very confused and frustrated. That's not reality. It's not that your friends or your coworkers or the person posting uh, videos on social media that contradict the gospel are themselves the enemy. The point is that behind them and above them are the spiritual forces of wickedness and darkness in this world, and they, will, they, they are infusing the world with the Ammonite mind. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and therefore we must arm ourselves with faith in the word of God to do battle, not against our neighbor, but against the demons who lie and oppress. But make no mistake, it is not going to be a walk in the park. It's a battle. There is someone who would gladly gouge out your eyes and perpetrate all manner of evil against you if they feel that they can bring disgrace on Israel and slander Israel's God. So this is the nature of the test that Saul faces. Uh, who will be right? Will the men of valor who trust in God's choice be shown to be correct when they choose to place their confidence in Saul? Or will the worthless fellows who brought him no present be shown to be correct when they question his leadership? So here's Saul. This isn't practice. This is the real exam. Sharpen your pencil because we're about to see what you're made of. And it's in verses 4 through 11 that we begin to see how Saul is going to do. And in fact, we see him pass the test with flying colors. So notice with me, not only the king tested, but in the second place, the king vindicated. The king vindicated. The messengers make their way to Gibeah. By the way, uh, I know that the names of these cities are probably obscure 
to most of you. Uh, they're hard to keep track of, but Jabesh Gilead, the city that's in trouble, and Gibeah, Saul's hometown, uh, they actually have a special relationship going back to the earliest decades of the period of the judges. Uh, we'll have more to say about that in a minute, but just understand, we might be unfamiliar with these terms, but people living back then, they, those cities were very well known to them. But anyway, the messengers reach Gibeah, and Saul is given an opportunity to respond to a desperate situation. And notice what we're told happens to Saul in verse 6. What, what happens to Saul? What does it say? It says, the Spirit of God rushes upon him when he heard these words. That language is very specific. It harks back to the time of Israel's judges, Samson, Jephthah, Deborah, Barak, uh, these charismatic, spirit-empowered leaders who deliver the people of God from the hand of the enemy in days of old. The Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. I wonder what that must have looked like. Uh, The anointing of the king turns into an activation of his kingly authority. And this work of God's spirit impacts Saul's affections and his actions. What does it say? The spirit of God rushes upon Saul when he heard these words. And then what's the next thing? His anger was kindled greatly. Sometimes we think God wants us to just be nice. But when Nahash is about to gouge out the eyes of the innocent, the fruit of the spirit looks a little different, doesn't it? Saul experiences this holy, burning, righteous anger, so his affections are ignited with jealousy and loyal love for the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead. But then he takes action. He doesn't just have the affection. He takes action. He's been out plowing in the fields with these oxen. And so he takes a sword or a, a meat cleaver or some kind of blade, and he begins to chop up these oxen. And he chops them up into 12 pieces and sends those pieces out to the 12 tribes and warns them that the oxen of anyone who doesn't show up at muster the next day are going to get mutilated in just the same way. So just picture this. Listen, the Bible, guys, is not G-rated, all right? Because it deals with, I'm sorry, and it's going to get even more intense. But the Bible deals with real life, And real life, the evil, the violence, the suffering in the world is not G-rated. So the Bible is not going to be G-rated. So I'm sorry. Anyway, back on track. Just picture this. Here's Saul, head and shoulders taller than everybody else, burning with anger, bursting with spiritual power, dripping with blood, holding a sword, and he picks up the head of a slaughtered ox and he hoists it on his shoulder and he says, you see this ox? This is the way everybody's oxen are going to look. If they don't show up tomorrow for battle, you go out and you tell them to get here one way or another. I mean, this is medieval. That gets the message across. If anybody doubted whether Saul intended to lead the people of Israel or whether he might cut them to pieces at a moment's notice, they're getting quite an education in this passage. But actually what Saul was doing communicated even more powerfully than that. As amazing as that picture would be, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you might have picked up on a lot of the similarities between this action and the activity that takes place in the last few chapters of the book of of Judges in what happens to be one of the most sordid historical accounts in all of Scripture. Think think back with me, and and I'm sorry, this is going to get really gross, really intense. In the final chapters of the book of Judges, we're told about something that actually happened right here in Saul's hometown, and it happened, uh, scholars believe, toward the beginning of the time of the Judges. 
even though it's told at the end of the book. It's sort of an appendix. What happened was that there's this certain Levite, we don't know his name, a Levite gentleman. Uh, he's traveling through the land of Benjamin, and he happens upon the city of Gibeah. And he actually chooses Gibeah. He's going to stay overnight there. He chooses Gibeah specifically because Gibeah is occupied by the people of Israel, and he doesn't want to stay somewhere where he's exposed to uh, people who are not a part of the, the people of God. And, and of course, in those days, there was no Holiday Inn Express. Travelers depended on the hospitality of a city's resident. And yet, he gets to Gibeah at dusk. He's there with one of his wives, and nobody takes him in. And so he and his wife have to stay in the, in the center of town. Uh, at this point in the story, we're already being reminded of a previous account about Sodom and Gomorrah. So finally, because this is similar, very similar to what happens in the book of Genesis in the case of Lot and his family. So anyway, the Levite and his wife, they show up in Gibeah. They're staying in the center of town. Finally, an old man shows up and he invites them into his house. But by this time, all the wicked men of the town had already found out that this guy had arrived and, and that he didn't have any friends, that he was isolated and alone, so he's exposed. So the men of the city, and this is really gross, they show up because they want to gratify their lusts with this Levite. And so they bang on the guy's door. And, and they say, let him out. You know, bring this guy out. And in order to compromise with the mob, the Levite and his host, they decide to compromise. And they offer up the guy's wife. Yes. So she spends a horrific night being violated until dawn. And then finally finds relief in death. One of Israel's cities, so this is Saul's hometown now, hundreds of years before, is now worse than the city of Sodom that God had destroyed with fire. So when the sun comes up, the Levite is so angry about it that he cuts up the woman's body and sends a piece to each of the 12 tribes, and all of Israel is just irate. So they muster as one man. That's the phrase that's used in the book of Judges. They get up as one man, and they destroy the inhabitants of Gibeah, and then uh, they get in, they're engaging in this battle, leaves the entire countryside soaked in blood, and only one city doesn't show up to help and ends up being attacked and destroyed. And it's the only inhabitants that are left are these young unmarried women, and they're given to the men of Benjamin as wives. Well, what, what city do you think didn't help attack Gibeah? It's the very same one we see that needs help here in 1 Samuel. So once again, we've got an incident with Jabesh Gilead, and Gibeah, and there's blood and things being chopped up and sent to all the 12, 12 tribes. So Saul, what he's doing, here's what he's doing. There's this cultural baggage that Israel has been carrying around for centuries with regard to these two cities. To us, they're obscure locations. Like, you might not have ever heard the name Jabesh Gilead before you walked into this room today. But to Israel, everyone living back then, these are well-known national embarrassments. And what Saul does is to hark back to the dark ages of Israel's history when there was no king. That's the takeaway from the book of Judges. There was no king. Everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. And so he harks back to that time in Israel's history, and, 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 and he's basically saying, do you remember when that woman was divided up and sent to all the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and all of Israel rose up as one man to destroy one of our own? Now, 
I'm tearing apart these animals and I'm sending these out to the 12 tribes, not so that we would destroy one of our own, but so that we would get together as one man to defend one of our own. So this is the difference a spirit-led, God-anointed king can make. Instead of devouring each other, instead of destroying each other, we're going to protect each other. Instead of shaming ourselves and slandering our God, let's rise up with a cry of courage and covenant loyalty and show the world that God is God. This is what Saul's saying. Instead of Israel having to cut away the Sodom-like cancer of city-sanctioned gang rape and chaotic violence, we're unifying under our covenant king. How refreshing a change. How electrifying it must have been. How motivating to follow such a one. See, when Saul experiences the spirit the Spirit's power, and he acts with decisive anger and incredible wisdom, and Israel rises up, and their enemies are slaughtered and scattered. What I believe, this is what I believe God is doing us to, with us. He is capturing our imaginations, and he's showing us this is what it could look like for a leader to be led by the Spirit of God. This is what can take place. Look what can happen when God's people are ruled by a godly king. The more the king relies on the spirit, the greater his ability to lead. Every once in a while, God shows us what's possible, what was intended for human beings, and what our sin takes away from us. What is a human being? A human being is a creature created in God's image. And that means, among other things, that we are created to be led and to lead as God's representatives in the world and on God's behalf. And look at what can happen when a human leader leans on the Spirit of God, immediate total victory against God's enemies and an absolute deliverance for God's people. See, folks, one of the things we have to deal with in this life is the the gap, a very wide gap, between what we know to be our potential as human beings and what we actually experience in reality as human beings. Have you felt that? Uh, It's painful to know that, that, that circumstances or sin are keeping us from being all that God has made us to be. But what Saul's experience shows us, I think, is a little glimpse of what God intended for us as human beings. This is what God wants for us. Can you imagine living in a world where sickness and exhaustion and ignorance and sin and all the other things that ail us do not prevent us from from fulfilling everything that God has for us. This is what God is showing us in this little moment in Saul's life. And folks, this is what the new creation is going to be like for all believers. Unhindered potential fulfilled in the lives of God's human creatures. But I want to point out what makes this possible. And it's very clearly stated for us in this text. What is it that makes it possible for Saul to fulfill his potential as God's anointed leader? It's the Spirit of God. Only by the Spirit of God. That's how. And while it's true that Saul's experience of the Spirit as this temporary empowerment for ministry is is very different from our experience of the Spirit who who indwells believers permanently, whether it's that Old Testament experience or the New Testament experience, the crucial point is the same. It's only by God's Spirit that we may become all that God intends for us to be. That is the only way that you can fulfill everything that God wants for you. 
So what's the solution for us as a church? What's the solution for us in our families? Is it more money? Is it better structures, more resources? Is it new ideas? No, it's one thing. It's God's spirit. Even Jesus himself lived in dependence on the spirit. That that was part of his decision to take upon himself a human nature and to surrender the independent exercise of his divinity. What did Jesus say in Nazareth to his neighbors in Nazareth in the synagogue? He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. So that's probably why the popular picture of Jesus as this hippie with golden locks and fine silky robes just isn't accurate. I don't know what Jesus looked like, but I doubt he looked very serene and nice when he was driving out the money changers from the temple. No, God's anointed one is no wimp. He is the conquering king, even at the very end of the Bible, as Brianna read a a few minutes ago, we see Jesus with his robe dipped in blood, destroying the enemy. We see a glimpse of that in Saul and its full glory in the Savior, Jesus Christ. So Saul is tested, and then he's vindicated. He passes the test. But with his place as king secure, what is he going to do with the worthless fellows who didn't accept him at first? Let's turn our attention now to the third movement in our text. The king tested, the king vindicated, and thirdly, the king celebrated. The king celebrated from verses 12 through 15. The dust clears, Nahash and the Ammonites are gone, they're scattered. Israel's victory is complete. And as the soldiers begin to return to Jabesh Gilead, a conversation strikes up. Man, who was it that questioned Saul's leadership? Who were the guys that said, can this man save us? Who were the guys who said, shall Saul reign over us? Let's get him. Let's put him to death. Again, hard for us to imagine because we live in an age and in a country that's characterized by law and order. Generally speaking, vigilante justice is frowned upon and not generally practiced. But this is the way it was. And if you thought Saul was finished showing us what it looks like for an anointed king to lead in the power of the Spirit, think again. He actually goes further than he did in the previous verses. Look at his response in verse 13. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. How refreshing is that? Saul is God's anointed leader. And when he's living in dependence upon the Spirit, he can go from shredding the enemy to rescuing and pardoning the rebel in the space of a single day. I mean, isn't that the kind of leader, isn't that the kind of king that we need? Is that how you would do things if you were in charge? I I question whether I would be that way. We're constantly being questioned and disrespected and managed and worked around and people don't take us seriously. They try to deceive us, they try to use us. So when we get a little bit of power, it's like, where are the people who doubted me? Bring them out that I may put them to death, right? Maybe not that extreme. But we want to get our pound of flesh. But this is Saul showing us what it's like when God's anointed leader acts in dependence on God's spirit and demonstrates the character of God. This is how the creator operates. You, you want to know what God is like? This chapter opens the door on God's heart quite clearly. He slays the mocker, but he forgives the rebel. 
This is what God does. Saul's moment of greatness is just a flash, but it points us to a man who was doubted and despised, who was hated and hanged upon a twisted execution stake, who had every right to round up the rebels and to slay them with the sword of his invincible word, but who, while wearing his kingly crown of thorns, had this to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just, you could just ask another man named Saul from the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus, you remember him? A man who sneered cynically at the idea that Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter, a peasant, could be the anointed king. A man who cursed and consented to the lynching of a godly deacon, a self-righteous bully who kicked like a mule against the prodding of the Holy Spirit. Saul could tell you about this God, this forgiving God. He could tell you about the day the radiance of the mercies of Christ blinded him and threw him to the ground. The day when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus and and poured out his forgiving grace upon the chief of sinners, the rebel himself. I wonder today if you've been saying to God's anointed king, how can this man save us? How can Jesus reign over us? Like these guys were saying about Saul. Can I just tell you something? Each one of us has done this to one degree or another in our lives. Each one of us has said this about Jesus. Can this man save us? And Christ's authority over us is so infinite, so absolute, that there is no excuse for that kind of rebellion. In fact, I mean this literally and in the nicest way possible. We deserve to die for that. But just like Saul here in our text, Christ perfectly exhibits the grace of the Father toward rebels like you and me. He's been patient with us till this very day. He's shown grace and mercy toward the rebel. And today, he invites you to believe in him and experience forgiveness for the ways that you have rebelled. Do you see how Saul's anger on the one hand and his generosity on the other hand is sort of a preview of the intentions that God has for human beings since the very beginning? We are meant to obey and to imitate, to live in covenant communion with a king who is fiercely just and refreshingly merciful. So what happens when that dynamic takes place among God's people? What happens when Saul leads in dependence upon the Spirit? Look at verse 14. Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. What happens when God's king, God's anointed king, rules in righteousness and mercy? The kingdom is renewed. I believe what our author is communicating here, it's not, he's not saying Saul's kingdom is renewed. No, Saul's kingdom is just being initiated. He's saying the rule and the reign of God is being renewed. Remember, this whole thing started when God's people rejected the rule and reign of God, and now they're renewing their commitment to him. And then what do they do? They start to rejoice. Israel had rejected God's rule. They were refreshed by the mercy of God's king. The worthless men repented. The kingdom was renewed. And then the result is that all of them rejoice. This morning, I wonder if instead of repenting, you've been running from King Jesus 
You believe that life would be better for you if you could just cast off all the authority, all the accountability, and rule yourself. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live the way I want to live. And you're playing right into the hands of the Ammonite mind. The ways of the wicked one and the world he's built to oppose the rule of God. And instead of freedom, you found yourself under siege. Like you're in a city and you can't leave. You're stuck. You're starving. There are no good options. Some of you are here. uh, you're, You're in this place. You're rejecting the rule of God. And you're there because you're being dominated by secret sin. Some of you are trapped because it's this smoldering anger that refuses to be quenched and you're ashamed of how many times over the last week you've lashed out and you've lost it with the people that you love the most. Or maybe today your chest is tight and your stomach is in knots because of an inescapable and inexplicable anxiety. You just can't trust your circumstances to God. Or maybe somebody here today is being shredded apart by the demonic powers and you're just being oppressed and you can't explain it nor can you escape it. And you've said no to King Jesus because you've convinced yourself that Jesus can't do anything about it. Or maybe that he won't do anything about it. That he's not on your side. That he isn't good. That he isn't strong. You've been running from his justice instead of resting on his mercy. And I just want to say today that today is a day just like the one that Saul talked about in the end of this chapter. Not a soul will be put to death today because the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. What I mean is that God's heart toward you is one of rescue and renewal, not recompense and restitution. You know how I know that? We're all still here. We're all still breathing. We all still have another chance to turn toward him, to step down from the throne And to give him his proper place. And I would ask you today to make a commitment. To renew the kingdom. To renew the rule and reign of God. To stop hedging your bets and go all in with God's kingdom. Repent from your doubts and begin to trust him as your king. And I think what you'll find is when you do that. When you begin to rely on the mercies of a God whose heart was forgiveness even while he was hanging on a cross you'll find that your heart is renewed and that you find occasion to rejoice. Would you pray with me now? Father, we submit to you as king. We see the, the potential of a man like Saul. We know that he's not going to end up fulfilling everything that you have for your king. We have to wait for Jesus uh, to see that come about. But Lord, your rule, your reign is just. You rescue your people from the enemy. You destroy demons. And yet you forgive the rebel. Lord, that's good news for us because we have been that rebel so many times. We have been unthankful. We have been ungrateful. We have been disobedient. We have been doubtful. And Lord, even today there is much uh, that we need to repent from. And I, I pray that you would renew each of our hearts and that you would restore us to the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ over our hearts this morning as we respond to you. We pray this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In a moment, we're going to respond to the Word of God in song. And I would just encourage you, like I do often, not to take this time to say, okay, what's next? What's the next thing? I've got to go do this. I've got to go do that. Uh, I've got to go pick up the kids. No, just relax. Just wait. And let the word of God 
soak into your heart. Don't let the seed of the word be plucked away by Satan. No, let it fall into the soil of your heart and be changed by what the Spirit of God is impressing upon you today. I would just encourage us all, let's respond. God, what do you want me to do today? How do you want me to respond in obedience and faith to you?